Welcome to the new podcast, History, Politics, and Beer, where we examine contemporary issues through the lens of history. We are solving the world's problems one podcast at a time. Now, from the home office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we invite you to sit back with an ice cold one and enjoy the pontifications of your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. All right, ladies and gents, welcome back to another edition of History, Politics, and Beer. Today, we are going to try to tackle the Korean War, um, give you some background of the Korean War, and also talk about what is going on in Korea right now. But before we get started, got to take care of business. Jeff Hudson is with me, as always, and he has brought us a very traditional beer. Go ahead, Jeff. Well, I bought Canadian beer today, and uh, there's several Canadian breweries that most people are familiar with, but probably the most familiar is Molson. And it's, I figured it is the time of the year where you have the Stanley Cups playoffs, and mm-hmm. uh, we're watching a Canadian sport on TV. I figured it was a good time to bring in a Canadian beer. It, it's a very, you know, good old traditional lagers. A good summer beer. It's a light beer. Um, yeah, you can drink a lot of these. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Molson Canadian's always been one of my favorite, just plain old lager. Yeah. And one, this, this is one of those beers that no matter who you're having over, you have a Molson. Everyone's going to like this. Yeah. All right. So pretty standard beer this week um, for, you know, traditional beer for a traditional topic. You know, the Korean War. Um, we have... The end of the Korean War this week, which is kind of interesting because I don't think a lot of people even realize the Korean War was still going on. Uh, most people, I think, would have speculated that, that ended a long time ago, right? Right. Well, um, you know, the Korean War uh, was part of the so-called Cold War between uh, worldwide communism and the democratic capitalist countries led by the United States. And in 1950, I think yeah, it was. Yeah, 50 to 53 was the war. Yeah, the, the North Koreans, uh, led by Kim Il-sung, the current leader's grandfather, decided that they would uh, invade South Korea and try to unify the peninsula under communist rule. But there was objections to that. Right, and I think we have to go back a little further to even talk about what was the rub. You know, us in the Soviet Union, we were allies during World War II, Um, and we were only allies because we had a common enemy in Nazi Germany. Uh, And when Nazi Germany falls in May of – no, April. No, May. May of 1945 – and after Japan surrenders in August of 1945, we have two world powers with different ideologies facing off with one another. We have a capitalist idea, free market idea with the United States, and we have a communist idea with the Soviet Union. And there's conflict and almost immediately because by its very nature, communism is expansionist. And there is this conflict between which countries are going to be communist, which countries are going to be free. And the Cold War begins almost immediately in 1945, 1946. Yeah, the uh, the Russians leave in violation of their promises. They, they leave their troops in uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, that can be seen in two ways, as as you rightly say, communism is basically expansionary. Uh, you know, Karl Marx hypothesized uh, a industrial revolution in which you would have a growing proletariat that was exploited, right, and uh, a small bourgeoisie 
uh, upper class that was making money. And sooner or later, uh, a surplus, uh, the capitalism was good, it created an economic surplus, but sooner or later, the, the proletariat would get tired of it and have a revolution and against the, the people who ran the government and ran the economy, and then things would be distributed equally. And once you're a communist country, it was the duty of every communist country to help along the revolution wherever. So there is right in the heart of, of communist ideology uh, an expansion, a, a, aggressive nature of this. And this is inevitable, right, according to Marx. You're right. According to Marx, this is not an if, this is a when. It's like growing up. You know, you, you're going to become an adult no, no matter if you want to or not. Uh, you can cling to being a child, but it, you're going to become an adult. And to Marx and communism, uh, maturing was simply becoming a communist nation. This this workers' revolution was going to happen. It was just a matter of time. But there is also a practical reason for Stalin to have this iron curtain and take over these countries. I think we as Americans sometimes don't understand or appreciate the idea that he would want uh, let me say, when we talk about the Iron Curtain, we're talking about these satellite nations like Poland, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia that separated the Soviet Union from Europe. And right after World War II, Stalin did promise to, especially in like places like Poland, he promised free elections there, but that never occurred. He wanted these communist states as a buffer between him and Europe. Right. The, the, you know, the Russians had suffered more than any one country in World War II. Uh, upwards of 20 million Russians were killed uh, due to the German invasion of, of their country uh, and the subsequent years of, of fighting. So, again, a lot of people forget that, too, that, uh, yes, there was this element of trying to export communism, but it was also um, – a very much an idea that they're going to protect Mother Russia from something like that ever happening again. Right, it happened twice. World War One, they were invaded. World War Two, they were invaded. So Stalin oh. has a, a pretty good reason to want friendly nations on his border. Right. Okay. Um, some of the first um, salvos of the Cold War, Berlin. Um, uh, they right. That was that nineteen forty-seven. The Berlin Airlift forty. Yeah, 47, 48. Yeah. Um, and Berlin was in um, West uh, Eastern uh, Germany, which was controlled by the Soviet Union. Uh, not to get too deep into this, but Stalin cuts off rail supply to Berlin, hoping to force the Allies out. Um, Truman says, we're staying in Berlin and airlift, and it's successful. And Berlin stays, or at least West Berlin, stays in control of the Allies. Uh, 1949 rolls along comes along and two big events in the Cold War happened in 1949. First, China uh, goes communist, even though the United States refuses to recognize uh, the Chinese government. And also the Soviet Union detonates an atomic bomb. Um, so in a very short period of time, there's a lot of action with the Cold War. We get the Berlin airlift. We get uh, the Soviet. We get China going communist. We get the Soviet Union detonating an atomic bomb. We get uh, to go up back before that, we have the Iron Curtain coming down across Europe. So there's a lot packed into these four years that are going to lead us into the Korean conflict in 1950. So sometimes when you think about the Korean conflict uh, or the Korean War, you can't think of it in a vacuum, just like you can't think of any historical event in a vacuum. You have to place it within its context. And the context at the time was communism is very active. Yeah, this it's, is a 
it's on the move. And, exactly. And Truman comes up with something that's since been labeled the Truman Doctrine. And that is the idea that America was going to help any nation that was threatened with a communist takeover. Now, this was first done in Turkey and Greece, but then the Truman, the Truman Doctrine was for any nation. That turns into the Marshall Plan. Well, the Marshall Plan is part of it, to, right. to rebuild Europe so people uh, find communism much less attractive if you have a growing economy and... You know, the uh, things are getting nicer and your, your kids have a secure future. You're much less likely to be attracted by uh, something like communism. But uh, so in, in 1950, when these, uh, the North Korean army pours across, uh, Truman is, who is the president, commander in chief, uh, sees that as a, a direct uh, um, conflict between the free world and the communist world, and it, it needs a reaction. It goes to the United Nations right. and doesn't declare war, doesn't ask for a declaration of war. We shy away from that precisely because atomic bombs are involved and we don't want to be uh, caught in a war which would uh, result in having to use nuclear weapons again. Uh, but <laughs> we do get a resolution and we send our expeditionary force led by the Americans. MacArthur. Yeah, and to South Korea and they begin fighting uh, and repelling the armies of North Korea. Right. So Truman wants to contain communism, right? This is the idea. We're not going to roll communism back where it already exists. And that's to be pragmatic. You don't want to start a war with the Soviet Union. So the idea is that simply you're going to contain communism where it is and not let it spread. Um through the UN, interestingly enough, the Soviet Union could have vetoed this. The Soviet Union was actually boycotting the Security Council at the time because of U.S. policy to China. We weren't recognizing China as a sovereign nation under communist rule, so the Soviet Union wasn't there. Or the Soviet Union could have vetoed this UN action, which would have then sort of pushed the United States to act unilaterally. Uh, but anyway, they're not there, so the United States can push in. The war is, in essence, should have been over in months. Um, North Korea uh, plows into South Korea, almost pushes the United States off the peninsula. Uh, MacArthur comes in, if you see the, an animated map of this, and you see how fast these lines are moving, uh, MacArthur overwhelms North Korea and pushes them back pretty quickly. But MacArthur goes too far and pushes close to China, which just turned communist not to a year before. And there is no way that communist China was going to let the United States that close to their border. And what MacArthur ends up doing is pushing so far that China is forced to come into the war. To protect and, their border. Right. And there's massive, one thing China's always had is a lot of people, and there's massive human wave attacks. China at this point doesn't have nuclear weapons, but they have a tremendous amount of people uh, in their army, and they end up pushing uh, the Americans back. And uh, by uh, 1953, you have pretty much have a stalemate where the war began, which is at the 38th parallel. Right. I mean, it's a little bit different, but for all intents and purposes, it is the same. Um, MacArthur even wanted to drop nukes along that border between the United, between North Korea and China. Thank God he didn't do that. Truman fires MacArthur, gets rid of him. Um, and in 1953, 
the war grinds to a halt. Um, matter of fact, in that election of 1952, when Eisenhower is running for office, one of the promises he makes as soon as he's elected that he is going to go to Korea to try to undo the logjam to get the peace process moving again. And he does. Uh, once he wins the election, he does go to Korea. Um, how much influence did his presence in Korea have? Well, we could debate that. But in the end, the Korean War ends. There's no treaty, right? It just sort of, it's an armistice to stop fighting. Right. And it's at the 30th parallel. I think they sign it in Panmunjong, or that's their peace village, they yes. call it. But uh, so it's basically uh, the, the animosity between the two Koreas and the animosity between North Korea and the United States has, con has continued uh, since that point, uh, we've had thousands of troops stationed in South Korea as a, a, a signal to North Korea that we were dedicated to protecting South Korea. Uh, there's been flare-ups. Uh, at one point, uh, the North Koreans captured an American intelligence ship called the Pueblo and held the crew hostage for uh, a number of days. So there's certainly been animosity. And then recently, uh, the latest uh, Korean uh, ruler has become increasingly interested in developing nuclear weapons. And Kim Jong-un, uh, under Kim Jong-un, the North Koreans have developed a, a nuclear bomb. They have developed some missiles, some missiles that we are afraid could eventually reach the United States. So this this animosity has kind of come to a head recently. Right. I want to back up one second on you and talk about sort of our moral obligation to be in Korea. You know, I know a lot of people look at our military presence around the globe and they really question why are we everywhere? And the United States is a moral obligation to be in Korea. After World War II, we helped the Japanese write their constitution. And part of their constitution was to dramatically limit their military for obvious reasons because of what happened during World War II. So now you have an ally of ours right at the tip of the peninsula that's threatened by Korea who doesn't have a large military primarily because we don't want them to have a large military. We sort of have this moral obligation to pre prevent war and to protect J Japan because they don't have a military. They've been t depending on us since 1945. And to abandon that obligation to most Americans would be morally reprehensible. You just can't leave the area. Right. And Japan, for obvious reasons, has ne never developed nuclear weapons right. themselves. And and also, just as obviously, they could very shortly and yes. develop a, a nuclear bomb and a delivery system that would probably be <laughs> extremely sophisticated and they could have their own deterrent. As a matter of fact, during the last election, uh, Donald Trump actually talked about uh, it might be the best thing to let South Korea and or Japan developed their own uh, nuclear weapons and developed their defense because one of his uh, selling points during the election was the exp the cost to Americans of keeping these armed forces around the world and uh, the idea that we're going to do more things for Americans here. America first, his America first idea involved actually leaving some of these commitments, even at some points, he talked about commitments to NATO and stuff being uh, up for discussion. So um, 
uh, you know, this kind of changed uh, the attitude toward Korea and our our attitude toward defending uh, South Korea seems to have gone through some kind of change when Trump got elected. Now, he's not the most consistent guy in the world, so you don't know how much... It, our policy actually will change. But. Yeah, I think Korea is a you know I think Korea is a special circumstance. You can't remove yourself from Korea. You know you are like a Japan could have a strong military. Japan could develop weapons. Um, they don't want to. You know they are a very much a pacifist people. Have embraced that sort of idea uh, idea of themselves, and I just don't see them developing the military necessary. For their protection but anyway um that is part of it right there is absolutely part of the who should be footing this bill so when the korean war ends in 1953 there's an armistice basically just an agreement to stop fighting so in some sort of weird way the war was still going on uh we had troops on the border they had troops on the border uh we're staring at each other back and forth i was just talking to a korean veteran the other day who served in the 70s and he said that it was rather routine to shoot at the North Koreans, um, that they would try to sneak across and get into South Korea, and the South Koreans would try to sneak across and get into North Korea. He said it wasn't daily shooting, but every few weeks, there would be a couple shots fired off because you would catch someone trying to sneak across. I don't think there's ever been, now maybe in the early 70s, um, when the Vietnam War was winding down, there was probably more pressure on the border because maybe the North felt that with American fatigue in Vietnam that they could push the Americans out of Korea. Um, But the border has not really ever been threatened. But all of a sudden, our attorney, not our attorney general, our secretary of state, uh, Mike Pompeo, um, we learned a couple of weeks ago that he actually went to visit Korea when he was director of the CIA. Um, There's pictures of him talking to Kim Jong-un, which were just released. What? What's going? I mean, that, to me, that that's crazy. Like, that's is is that crazy to me? That's to me. I, I see that on the news, and my first response is, how in the world is Mike Pompeo, my CIA director, talking to North Korea? What's the what's happening? Right, and then what's happening uh, just recently with uh, the the uh, Korean leader Kim Jong Un stepping into the South. For the first time, any North Korean leader has done that since the end of the Korean War and signing a treaty that officially ends the Korean War and makes pledges about denuclearizing the whole peninsula. What what happened? And we, we don't know. We don't know how much the United States has been involved in this process. It seems like... The two, and this is what happens sometimes when when you do live in the United States. You su- you assume everything is about you and your right. power, and certainly that might have played a role here. But there's also internal pressures, I'm sure, in North Korea uh, that we don't we aren't entirely uh, cognizant of. We don't know about. And so, what kind of internal pressure is there in North Korea that moving uh, Kim Jong Un to to make this kind of overture toward the South. And we can, right now, we can only speculate. Right. I mean, I, I look at pictures of Kim Jong-un shaking hands with President Moon, and it looks like they're two buddies from, from camp, from the summertime, getting together, reminiscing about old times. Um, 
this is the same leader that just a few months ago or weeks ago was talking about plunging everybody into nuclear war and talking about uh, attacking the United States. And I think there was even propaganda videos out of New York coming under attack of atomic bombs from Korea. I mean, basically, Kim Jong-un and his father, Kim Jong-il, have fostered this belief that the United States is like a tiger ready to pounce, that is only by the grace of the dear leader in Korea that the United States, the evil capitalists, are being kept at bay. And they have a huge army. It's like 750,000 people or something in their army. It's just a huge army for the size of their country. Right, considering they can't even feed their own population and people starve to death in that country. You know, this idea of guns and butter, you can either defend yourself or feed yourself. And apparently North Korea has decided that defense is what they want. But for many years, their even their military was kind of a joke. I mean, um, not their soldiers, but when they used to do these big grand parades and these missiles would go up and down the street and, you know, our experts would look at them and go, these were put together in a junkyard someplace. I mean, they're not, they don't work. We can look and tell you what all the parts are. You know, these things aren't going to do a damn thing. So we kind of knew that a lot of it was just for show. Um, But now, I mean, they fired a missile over Japan. I mean, we just had a missile alert in Hawaii that People and it ended up not being real, but people felt it was real. People panicked because the technology we think is there that now he has nuclear weapons. He has the technology to get nuclear weapons. So, all right. So here's my question for you, Jeff. He has nuclear weapons. He has the technology now to de- deliver those weapons in some crude manner. Why is he coming to the table? Like, what is it? Or so- is there something wrong with this program? Is there something? What What do you think is there? Because this makes, to me, on the surface, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for him to come to the table now. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things that people speculate on. And one other thing I think we should mention, too, that that, that would have made uh, a preemptive strike against North Korea really, really unattractive is that even without nuclear weapons, there was never any doubt that North Koreans could inflict severe damage on Seoul. One of the bigger capitals in Asia. I, I mean, think. Seoul is right there. Next it's to the what, I don't. I think it's within sixty miles, right. isn't it? And and so that made this problem really naughty. It's like, like you can threaten to attack North Korea as we have, and I think Trump, you know, threatened them with. Uh, uh, you know, uh, a, a kind of attack that the world's never seen before. Uh, but at the same time, all the American leaders knew, I think even Steve Bannon said this, that, you know, they you can't really do anything because they have Seoul as hostage. Right. And, you know, you can, the majority of... Uh, of uh, South Koreans live fairly close to the North Korean border, right. so there, there's a limit. So, so why now is the is the question? And there's lots of different answers. Now, if you look at where North Korea is and Korea in general, and you see it in relationship to the huge country, uh, basically uh, that it's a peninsula of, it's China. So, one of my thoughts always in this is. What it, what role is China doing? I mean, China it buys up the the North Korean coal, and, even when they're not supposed to. Yeah, even when they're not supposed to. And uh, you know, they they basically without China's cooperation, North Korea 
would have even a, a more difficult time trying to feed its people, having any kind of economy. So to me, one of the things that must be obvious is, is China must have figured out that it is not in their interest to have a nuclearized Korea, that this is not a good idea. For, and, uh, you know, it, it's kind of okay to have this rogue client state on their border until it's threatening nuclear war. Right. In which case, it's there would be no interest of the Chinese to have any kind of huge conflagration right, right on their border. So China has changed their mind. And, and why at this time? It, it might be that Kim Jong-un has gone too far. That's well, a possibility. Yeah, I mean, obviously, China doesn't want the doesn't want a U.S. ally to be on their border, um, and so a weakened North Korea, certainly that is stable, is in their benefit. Uh, any huge problem in North Korea is going to be two problems for China. Number one, if North Korea falls and a U.S. allied nation is now on Chinese border. They're not going to like that. The second, the second part is, if that doesn't happen, and tens of millions of refugees start flowing across the border into China, that's also going to be problematic for China. So it does make sense that China is going to buy North Korean coal um, and is going to violate some of these embargoes that the U.N. puts in place because the the worse things get in North Korea, the more refugees are flowing across the border, the more that's a bigger problem for China. Matter of fact, China is putting up fences now on their border to try to keep some of the North Koreans out. So I do understand China's position to some degree. Um, but I can't help but think that we might be looking at the Trump effect here. Um, you know, I ask myself, you know, when I think about Donald Trump and I think about the economy or I think about unemployment, the thing I ask myself is if Hillary Clinton were elected, what would be happening right now? And for a lot of the economics of it and what the stock market is doing and, and unemployment, I would have to think that it'd be pretty similar if Hillary Clinton yeah, to, was elected. To agree. I mean, you had 84... Uh, uh, weeks of job growth right. before Trump got in. So right. it wasn't like, you know, he was kind of jumping in front of the parade. It was already taking place. But in this one, if Hillary Clinton is president, I don't know if this happens. I don't know if North and South Korea, if Kim Jong-un is willing to talk to President Moon. Is this the Trump effect? Is this his policy of toughness and sort of his policy of you don't know where I stand on issues. Is this enough to bring Kim Jong-un to the table? Well, he, he says, he says in negotiations uh, that you need to be unpredictable. And, <laughs> he, I mean, he's, he's said that about business negotiations. He's, he's applied that principle to uh, negotiations with other countries. And for the most part, uh, I think... A lot of people in in uh, in international relations would disagree with that. You want a very stable presence by the United States, and I think I I would probably agree with with them. Except, how about up up uh, in when you're confronting a guy who is unstable himself or is a loose cannon himself now? Just because Kim Jong Un is is seen as aggressive and 
and a very oddball character. That also doesn't mean he doesn't want to preserve himself. Right. It doesn't mean, you doesn't know. Make, it doesn't make him irrational. In the sense, like, self, the self self-preservation. Exactly. And he may not want, a, you know, a cruise missile, uh, you know, coming to, to get him in, in the middle of the night. And maybe he's afraid a guy like Trump might do that. Uh, we just don't know. And we don't know also if if Trump or the people in his administration, because, again, he's getting, you know, help from Pompeo is now the Secretary of State and uh, Kelly is Chief of Staff and stuff. If, if they have done something like Ronald Reagan did at the end of uh, the Cold War, I mean, Ronald Reagan in the United States, you know, sometimes we're given credit like we, 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 you know, we, we won the Cold War. And we certainly, you know, in, in the policy of containment worked. But there was also these great internal pressures in the Soviet Union that we did not predict. We did not know. The CIA, nobody knew that the Cold War was going to end when it did. And uh, you, you, But people like Ronald Reagan did see that Gorbachev was a different kind of leader that he might be able to deal with. He went to Reykjavik, I think, in Iceland, right. made the Star Treaty, and they started to reduce uh, nuclear weapons uh, not just limit them like they had before, but actually reduce them and have mutual inspections. So is something like this, I mean, is, is someone in the Trump administration or Trump himself see that this is possible now? Well, I don't know. But if if they did, they just, and it leads to uh, a denuclearized Korean peninsula, they deserve credit for it. Well, absolutely, they're going to deserve credit for it, and he'll take credit whether he deserves it or not. And quite honestly, that's what presidents do, right? I've always says presidents get too much blame when things go wrong and too much credit when things go right. But if you have a denuclearized peninsula, certainly as president of the United States, you know, it, you're right. The, we did not know of the internal problems of the Soviet Union. Not near the extent of them, anyhow. No, but Reagan played – he doubled down. You know, when we have Nixon – and Ford and Carter. Uh, the, basically, detente is the terminology we use in the 1970s, trying to come to peace with the Soviet Union, trying to find a middle ground. And Reagan says, no, there is no middle ground here. He calls it the evil empire. We're, they're they're, they're going to be on the ash heap of history, he says. And we start military spending. We start things like this uh, Star Wars program that we're going to use somehow satellites to shoot missiles out of the sky, which obviously we can't even do that today. Um, and he forced the Soviet Union to keep up. And the Soviet Union couldn't keep up. And he hastened the end of the Cold War. He he had a chance to put the foot on the throat of the Soviet Union, and he did. He did not know how long it may take, but he knew that they couldn't keep up. In the long run, they can't. This is good for us. This is bad for them. And is this what Trump is doing, right? I mean, is now Kim Jong-un over there saying, you know, Obama was rather predictable. Bush is rather predictable. This guy may call my bluff. And if he calls my bluff, it's all over. I have to come to the table now because he's changed the game, just sort of how Reagan changed the game in 1980. I mean, maybe I'm giving uh, uh, Trump a lot of credit to compare him to Reagan. Well, but and then maybe you're giving Reagan too much credit either because, and, and again, I'm not sure the collapse of these foreign uh, nations 
uh, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union in particular, certainly it had to do with our policy of containment to some degree. But you also had a Russian ethnic group conquering places that were, in some cases, majority Muslim, uh, ethnically diverse, you know, trying to conquer the Ukraine and, and Georgia and Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan. And these people resented it very, very much, as we, as we now know. I had an exchange student from the Ukraine uh, many years ago, one of the best uh, uh, American government and history students <laughs> I ever had, Oleg. And, uh, uh, and I would refer to Oleg as being from Russia. And he'd go, oh, no, 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 I'm from the Ukraine. And this is when the Soviet Union still existed. Right. And he wanted to make sure... I knew, and everybody in class knew, he wasn't a Russian. He was a Ukrainian. So I think we really underestimated the nationalism and, and the internal conflicts. And I think you might be doing this, we might be doing the same thing here in Korea. It looks like the mountain where they uh, conducted nuclear right. research and blew up bombs has, has collapsed. Uh, we don't know how much of the uh, nuclear program collapsed with that mountain. But that seems to have happened just recently. And how much that event affected Kim Jong-un's willingness to make peace, uh, we don't know. No. And there's no way, of pre- we, we can't tell how much that is. But even if there's internal conflict, and certainly the internal conflict in the Soviet Union, there was, it was wide and it was vast. Yeah. But you need a leader to take advantage of that. You need a leader or you need to have a policy that exacerbates that, that makes it worse. Just like in football, when your star cornerback goes out and a new cornerback comes in, you throw right to that wide receiver. You take advantage of that weakness. And I can't help to think that Reagan did that. You know, without Reagan exacerbating the problems that the Soviet Union already was having, that the Soviet Union could have gone on for quite some time because they didn't have to, pay, they wouldn't have to pay attention to the uh, building up their missile program, building up their defenses to counter what the United States was doing, and then chasing boondoggle things like uh, Star Wars, for example. And in like I said, in, in a way, I do think that Trump does that, that there's all these internal struggles in North Korea, feeding your people, um, and then uh, having defense, your, your relationship with China, right? And now Trump is a wild card. And he says that, you know, you don't know what he's going to do in militarily. And then that scares Kim Jong-un. I have to come to the table now because if I don't, like I said, you know, you don't think you think I'm giving too much credit to Reagan and too much credit to Trump in this, that there's the internal conflicts are bigger than the external pressures. Yeah, I do think that. And I, I think there's one thing. Uh, that certainly happened in the Soviet Union, and that was a desire for a better standard of living. Okay, I mean, yeah. you would you would have toilet paper shortages in a in a, in a country that could produce, uh, you know, nuclear submarines. Yeah, there was, was, a, there was <laughs> an author. You know, you ever heard of the author Louis Grizzard? No. I mean, uh, Louis Grizzard was a Southern author, and he he wrote during the um, during the Cold War, and he said, um, "How can you be a world power when you can't master the flush toilet?" You know, right. there's a lot of truth to that. Right. And, and, and I don't, you know, I think in the, you have this idea of a, a shrinking world all the time. And, and you know, I, I haven't read a study on this, but did, did more and more people in the Soviet Union 
and I think they did, but like I said, I haven't read a study, discovered that their style of life was completely different than Western Europeans. They're completely different than Americans. Said, you know, not being able to get toilet paper was not something that happened in, in the developed world. And I wonder, and I know this happened in China. I know when you had the student rebellion and you had the crushing of that rebellion in Tiananmen Square, Tiananmen yeah. Square that the Chinese Communist Party made a very deliberate decision that they were going to allow a lot more economic freedom, not human rights, not political freedom. They're going to run, be run by the Communist Party, and now we have a, a president for life in, right. uh, in China. But – and. And so they allowed more economic freedom. And again, I have no, I'm, I'm sure North Korea is a closed off kingdom. But I, you know, you wonder with the internet and with their proximity to China and, uh, you know, do their educated elites, of which they, I mean, if they're developing nuclear weapons and so forth, they have an educated elite, do they know about China's standard of living now? Because it's just changed completely in the last 20 or 30 years. And I, want, I just wonder, it, is, is there anything in there that brings a new pressure that we don't know about? Because the educated elites would be the ones that Kim Jong-un would be worried about. Right. They're the ones that can eventually be your replacements. Is there anybody there who is he suspects or even has conversations with that's you know talks about china and their ability to retain a uh, a dictatorship you have a president for life now and at the same time modernize uh the economy if you remember when east germany the berlin wall fell i mean east germany was dirt poor but west germany was rich right and the west germans rushed in and developed a lot of capital and made it you know South Korea's got one of the biggest economies in the world. If you've ever heard of Samsung or Kia or Hyundai, and you can go on and on and on. Is there, is that conversation ever happened? And we don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me if it did. No, I think Kim Jong-un has himself in a, in a great position. He's in a win-win. Um, he signed an agreement to end the Korean War, which to me in practice and theory should mean this, the United States leaves the peninsula. The war is over. You don't need to guard this uh, border anymore. And if Kim Jong-un can get the United States to leave the peninsula, he wins, right? I mean, that's a great propaganda piece for him. If it all falls apart uh, and this piece, and we get nothing out of this peace process, which is a very real possibility, he wins then anyway because he can then go back to his people or go back on the international stage and say, look, I did this. I, I, went, I went into South. He right, I shook into his South hand. Korea. You can see we hugged and stuff and shook hands. And they and, showed that on North Korean uh, television. Right? And the Americans and the South, I told you you can't trust these people. I told you this is what they're going to do. We went over there with good intentions and look what they did. They would not listen to us. We signed a treaty. The men are still there. Why would, you know, from Kim Jong-un's position, if these Americans don't leave the border, what, what's the American intention now? The war's over. Why are they there? They're there because they're going to want to invade. We fulfill the very prophecy. Or they want to keep us separate. Right. We, we want to unite. We're all Koreans, but they're keeping us, so we're the bad guy again. Right. So uh, Kim Jong-un, I think, is in a real good position politically uh, on the world stage and in his own country because either way this thing breaks, I don't see how he comes out of it less politically 
in a better political position in his own country. Now, I know he doesn't have to worry about his political position because he could just kill people. I mean, for love of God, they think he's a god, right? I mean, when his father died in Korea, I mean, we have a little tape here we want to play. But when his father died, and here you can listen to this, uh, this was when Kim Jong-il died, right? Um, This was the wailing that took place when Kim Jong-il died. The official mourning ceremonies. I mean, and it goes on for what? minutes, and you hours. Can, and you can hear that it sounds fake. Here we go. time go. If you look at it on YouTube, it looks even more fake than it sounds. <laughs> yes, it does. But then that brings me back to how secure is this guy? I mean, at one time, in one way, you can say, well, he's going to be the leader and these people are forced. And I think people uh, were arrested and thrown in camps for not mourning right. enthusiastically enough. The, the only way I could, I might disagree with you a little bit is about his position is are there elites that he's talking to who really, really want a better lifestyle? Is it, how widespread is that? I mean, and that idea sometimes doesn't go away. And people, it's a very- How much money can we be making if this opens up? Oh my God, yeah. And, and you know, I, and I think of the situation in uh, Myanmar when the, you know, you had a military dictatorship uh, for many years and, and you had an opposition leader uh, who wins the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, uh, I think her name is, uh, was it Song Kyu Ki? Right. Kyu Ki is her last name, Unk. And anyhow, uh, at, at some point, this shocked me. They just decided they were going to have elections, and she became the leader of the country and was out of her household exile that she was 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 put in. And um, you know, the only way I could think that happened is that someone talked in the military and said, you know, as soon as we modernize, as soon as we become a little more open. There's going to be a lot of money coming in here. And yes, your sons and daughters are, are part of a sort of hereditary elite. But we will make sure when that money comes in, they'll be part of a financial elite that also is guaranteed. I mean, if someone has, you know, $10 million, $50 million in the bank, it's, your, your, it's not only your sons and daughters, your grandsons and granddaughters, your great sons, great granddaughters and great grandsons are going to be an elite position because they're going to start out at the top of the heap. And that's the discussion I would find that, that we can only speculate, but I find very, very interesting. Is Has that happened? And that's also a way, obviously, that Kim Jong-un could, could maintain power. If he is, <coughs> uh, if he is uh, funneling money to these people who could eventually possibly be his rivals. They're not going to be his rivals anymore. You no, know, I, they're going to be co-conspirators. I, and I, I think that what you said about China, I think, is is a really overlooked part of this, that you can look to your neighbor and see financially how much China is benefiting from, an, from semi-open markets, how you can still stay con, in control of your country. You can let 
capitalist and investment in and everyone benefits and your position elevates because, and your job becomes easier too. You don't have to have these walls around your country. You don't have to have concentration camps. No, uh, you and know. you can be filthy, unbelievably rich by letting um, the markets, the free markets in and you still get to maintain control. So, you know, I wanna, I wanna end this sort of little discussion with, for a, with a question for you. Um, and I wanna go back to a question I asked before. And that is, if Hillary Clinton is president, is this taking place? Yeah, and you know, I can't, I can't say for sure. I don't think it's taking place now. No, I agree. Uh, you know, I think, I think, would it eventually take place? I think there's a real possibility because of the inter- just like the fall of the Soviet Union. I think the in- there's an internal dynamic that we can't control. That's out of, but. I don't think it would be, be happening now. No, so. I agree. I, I think that uh, in a way, just as I believe that the Soviet Union was going to collapse no matter what, I believe that Reagan hastened that collapse. I do believe that Nor- the North Korea was going to collapse eventually. And whatever is happening, whether it's an internal dynamic, whether it's Trump, the Trump effect, whether it's China, it, it, we are hastening the collapse. And I do think, I, I agree. I, I think that Trump has to have some sort of credit here for pushing this quicker than Hillary would have pushed it. I think Hillary would have taken a much more conservative route and not have been scared of what could have happened instead of excited about what could have happened and with peace. So I think that's I think that's about where we can leave it here when we get to, I don't know if we can dig any deeper in this or not. Oh, we'll have to see what happens in the long run. And we don't know. Right. I mean, we have these initial steps, but they're steps that are hard to walk back now. Yes. Because now, because, I'm, you know, when, when I talk about the modernization and getting people excited, I mean, this the, the, these uh, peace talks with President Moon have been on television in North Korea. You're getting expectations. You're yes. getting people's expectations up. That's a very dangerous thing if you turn around and now try to, you know, uh, uh, somehow... Uh, put Tamp a damp, down, yeah. yeah. Put a damper on that. So, I, you know, it's it's a very interesting time, and we'll see. We'll just have to see what happens on that. All right. Well, hey, thanks, guys and girls, for joining us. Uh, as always, you can hit us up on email. You can hit us up on Twitter. Uh, we would love for you to rate us on iTunes. Until next time, um, bye bye.